0: Good morning, everyone. One of the most joyful opportunities in the season of Advent is to celebrate the long tradition and history of music, and I think many of us would argue that few people in the history of the English canon uh, have contributed more to the music of this holiday season, both for Jews and for Christians, than George Frederick Handel. Handel, born in the middle part of the 18th century, one of the Most famous composers, in fact, Bach once remarked that if you hear Handel, you've heard God. Today, we focus on two of his pieces, one very familiar, I'm sure, to all of you, the other probably less so, and the first one that we'll explore. But in order to understand what's going on with Handel, a couple of introductory remarks are in order. Samuel Johnson, the renowned English lexicographer and author of The Lives of English Poets, made the observation that to judge rightly of an author, including the author of a libretto or of music, we must transport ourselves to his time and examine what were the wants of his contemporaries and what were his means of supplying them. As Handel came on the musical scene, and perhaps as a result of his perspective, the emergence of a unique musical form began to take place, called the oratorio. And several things distinguish it from the music of the time. First, and perhaps most importantly, it made vocal music accessible to an English-speaking audience. Think about the classic pieces, both religious and secular, Many of them were sung in Italian, in Latin, in Spanish. And now, with the development of the oratory, especially in the hands of someone like Handel, an English-speaking audience could grab hold of them. They were certainly less expensive to produce than operas, and they focused on a distinct singing rather than acting genre. So for those of you who've enjoyed uh, classical opera, you know that there is an acting component, although not often very well done. The focus truly in oratorio was simply on the music, and if any of you have ever seen, uh, for example, Messiah performed live, you notice that the principals simply stand in front of the conductor and sing their roles, and are seated. There is no uh, physical interpretation of the actions uh, contained in the cantata. What we'll explore today is the fact that this music is not for, just for the sole enjoyment of our ears. There's both a theological and political context, which is what I think makes Handel so incredibly fun, especially for an Episcopal audience living in these very difficult political times. The last point I'd like to make about oratorios. As opposed to opera, which elevates the single voice, the soprano, the baritone, holding forth in musical grandeur, the purpose of the oratorio is not to dismiss that, but to elevate the role of chorus, of an entire ensemble of singers gathered together, shouting for joy. It's the theological context for the two oratorios we're going to listen to today, and in fact for most of Handel's oratorios. First, they're intended to address the rising tide of deism and the assault on the Trinity. You might recall that many of our founding fathers, for example, were deists. They weren't Christians. They were people who simply believed in the existence of some supernatural power, uh, sometimes called providence, other times called creator, sometimes referred to God. But it wasn't a specific God. It wasn't the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. It certainly wasn't Jesus. And the notion of a Holy Spirit? Not a chance for these rationalists of the Enlightenment. There was also an increased secularization of morality, rather than morality being grounded in Scripture. The English-speaking world especially began to understand it grounded in law and grounded in the exchange of rights and responsibilities among individuals. Handel also began to bear witness to the emergence of modern biblical criticism. No longer was Scripture simply taken directly at its word or in allegorical fashion, There was a genuine attempt by scholars to take a look at the way it was written, by whom it was written, for what purpose it was written, what agenda did the author have in mind. There's a reaction in the oratorios to the perceived violence in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, In fact, one of the commentators of Handel's time described the Old Testament as being morally corrupt because Israel was always engaged in warfare. But as many of you know from conversations we had last spring about the nature of violence in Scripture, that's not the case, and that's not what was happening in the Hebrew Scriptures. And finally, the oratorios speak against the rising tide of anti-messianic fulfillment. The notion that there could be no Messiah, that the Messiah had not come, would never come, and was simply a figment of our imagination. So what you have in Handel's oratorios It's not liberal music. It's not even liberal theology. It is very evangelical theology. You'll hear, especially in Handel's Messiah, one piece where uh, talking about the, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and Handel's librettist named Charles Jennings write, it's true because the word of the Lord has spoken it. That's the point of oratorio. The word of the Lord has spoken it. All of this other stuff, is humanistic rubbish. What are the political themes? Equally as complex, given what was happening in England at the time, certainly they elevated the sense of patriotism and love of country. Uh, As you'll note in Judas Maccabeus, uh, Thomas Morel, who wrote the libretto, dedicated it to the Duke of Cumberland, who just prevailed at the Battle of Culloden in Scotland, over Bonnie Prince Charlie. This was an opportunity to stake out the claim for the British sovereign. It's also a claim to liberty, uh, a reaction of many in the musical world. The government was reaching a bit too far into their lives and compromising their sense of freedom, looking for a constitutional balance between Parliament and the monarchy a never-ending quest in the United Kingdom, the interesting discussion and debate about a standing army versus a militia, many of us may not realize this because of our hard-fought American Revolution, but England had the smallest standing army in all of Europe. And at, that, at the point in time the oratorias were written, one of the political debates was whether or not England would be better served and the liberty of individual citizens better preserved by having a militia rather than a standing army. So not surprisingly that Thomas Morell would choose a story from the Hebrew Scriptures about the rising of a militia to rescue Israel. There's a political point that Morell is trying to make whether Handel wanted to do it or not. Certainly the ongoing emphasis on uh, the corruption of luxury and wastefulness and the political divisions that tore about the country. This battle between uh, the Duke of Cumberland and Bonnie Prince Charlie was a battle about theological practice, Protestants versus Roman Catholics. It's a battle about the primacy of England vis a vis Scotland. Many different elements of divisiveness uh, arising in 18th century England that the oratorio was intended to address. So, what's the background? of Judas Maccabeus, or as we might more frequently note, Judas Maccabees. It was composed in 1746 as a collaboration between George Frederick Handel, uh, the musician, and the Reverend Thomas Morell, a rather disaffected Church of England clergy person. Couldn't seem to hold a job, so he turned to writing poetry and music. (laughs) As I mentioned, it was dedicated to the Duke of Cumberland's victory, and drawn, uh, in terms of its language, largely from the deuterocanonical work, otherwise known as the Apocryphal work, of 1 Maccabees and uh, Flavius Josephus' Jewish Antiquities. Josephus, as some of you might know, uh, is the first to record in known history the existence of a person named Jesus, who was a Jewish priest, Jewish political leader in the first century uh, uh, following Jesus' life and death. Judas Maccabees commemorates the ongoing revolt uh, against the Seleucid Empire headed by King Antiochus IV, who along with Syrian and Greek counterparts had occupied all of Judea. Celebrated today as the Feast of Hanukkah. We'll talk about why uh, it's celebrated and what some of the rituals of Hanukkah have to do with this one Judas of Maccabees. mentioned the Seleucid Empire occupied Judea in the second century before Christ's birth. Uh, noted for its uh, incredible repression of Jewish ritual and practice, reading of the Torah was not allowed. Uh, the temple was sacked and desecrated, uh, converted, in fact, to a shrine to Zeus. Uh, the altar was removed. Jewish people were so frustrated by this, that one of the elder priests, Mattathias, and his five sons began to collaborate about the potential for a revolt. And Matthias, unfortunately, was killed, uh, but his sons, led by Judah, uh, organized the rebellion and ultimately resulted in the rededication of the temple, the expulsion of the Seleucids, the cleansing of the altar, and the miracle of lights, which is how we best know Hanukkah. Judas Maccabees appears to us in three acts. Uh, the first of which has uh, several key points to it. it begins with Mattathias' death and Israel's mourning. It then extends to uh, the search for a new leader and enthusiasm and a grateful. Also includes Mattathias' son Simon, the eldest, proclaiming his younger brother Judas as the leader. So, Act One is sort of setting the stage for the revolt. Mattathias, the presumed general, dies. The people first are concerned, but then get excited that a new leader is emerging. Sounds like the search for a bishop to me. And then we hear the clear announcement. The themes uh, you might hear in the several pieces we're going to play from Act One are the strength of Jehovah, that there is no power beyond Jehovah. Notice, this is not some uh, uh, generic God. This is not some fictitious creator or providence. This is Jehovah, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures that is being declared. So in the context of the earlier theological discussion, it reclaims Israel's historic victories and makes the clear point that these were not searches for vainglory. These were not morally corrupt adventures of a demented people, these were people defending God's created order. And this, in fact, this revolt against the Seleucids is a continuation of that tradition. You'll also hear patriotism, liberty, and the concept of militia raised clearly. So here are several selections from Act 1 of Judas Maccabeus. This is the So the tone clearly set in Judas Maccabeus, mourn ye, remain awake. A nation seemingly now hopeless, their leader is lost. But then we rather quickly turn to the chorus proclaiming the excitement about the search. O Father, whose almighty power the heavens and earth and seas adore, the hearts of Judah, thy delight. In one defensive band unite, and grant a leader bold and brave, if not to conquer, born to save. So now for Israel's version of the search process. Out from the mourning of the people of Israel to their excitement about the search, and now it's time for Simon, the eldest of uh, Matthias' sons, to announce the new general. And we hear that in this wonderful chorus. Arm, arm, ye brave, a noble cause, the cause of heaven your zeal demands. In defense of your nation, religion, and laws, the Almighty Jehovah will strengthen your hands. We come, we come in bright array, Judah, thy scepter to obey. This is a nation engaged passionately in their preservation, their defense, girded to the loins, and ready to take on the Seleucids. Now to the second act of Judas Maccabeus. begins with Judas' acclaimed victories over the Samarian and the Syrian armies. Then the mobilization of Antiochus' forces and Israel's despair. So first, Judah triumphs, a great victory. But then the king of Syria amasses his armies, and Israel begins to fall back into despair, wondering whether or not they can possibly succeed. Yet Judas and Simon restore Israel's spirits and hope. Again, similar themes, Jehovah's might, the righteousness of the Maccabean cause, God's covenant with Israel, and the moral justification for the violence that Judah and his maccabean Hasmonean army are about to wrought. This is Judah just having won the first of a series of victories. Hail Judea, happy land, salvation prospers in his hand. Namely, Jehovah's through the agency of Judas Maccabees. Hope you can also begin to appreciate the importance that Chorus is taking on in this oratorio fashion. It's really where the power and the might is registered. Recall, uh, mobilization of Antioch's forces and Israel's despair. Here we hear Israel brought humbly to its knees, ah, wretched Israel, fallen how low from joyous transport to desponding woe, from the glory of the victory that Judah first enjoyed, now to looming disaster. Needs to happen in the face of such potential disaster, the troops need to be rallied, and toward that end, we'll hear Simon and Judah Maccabeus calling the people of Israel to gather together. At the very end of that chorus, you see and hear reflected key themes of Handel in the oratorio motif. We hear the pleasing, dreadful call. This is Simon and Judas and the people responding and follow thee to conquest. If to fall for laws, religion, liberty, we fall. So this is uh, essentially Judas and Simon announcing that the cavalry is on its way. Be not afraid. The final act of Judas Maccabeus begins with uh, an announcement that the temple has been regained, Judah has triumphed, and a feast of lights is to be celebrated. Now, why a feast of lights? Two traditions, two traditions, the first of which is that it apparently took, historian Josephus announced, eight days to recapture the temple. It was a long siege. And it took that long to both recapture it and to cleanse the altar which had been previously defiled. But the more popular interpretation comes from Talmudic scholars several generations later, who note that when the temple was defiled by the Syrian Greeks, they essentially broke all of the holy oil, all of the oil used uh, for sacrifice and for making things holy, but saved one jug, only one, enough to light a candle for a day. Nevertheless, they lit a candle, and it burned for eight days. And hence, the eight days of Hanukkah, the great festival of lights that we celebrate in respect of our Jewish heritage, our Jewish tradition in which we share. Second part of the third act is Judas' victory and his entry into Jerusalem with one of the most famous choruses that uh, you'll hear. Uh, The announcement of the alliance with Rome. Rome agrees to protect Judah uh, from Syrians and Greeks, and hence the precursor to the Roman occupation, resulting ultimately in Pontius Pilate. And finally, the closing anthem, the praise of Jehovah for this great victory. So first, the temple regained and the Feast of Lights. Father of heaven, thine eternal throne, look with an eye of blessing down while we prepare with holy rites to solemnize the feast of lights. And thus our grateful hearts employ, and in thy praise this altar raise with carols of triumphant joy. And now for Judas' valiant entry into Jerusalem. Judah has completed the cycle, delivered the people of Israel yet again in the long tradition of those human agents who've been used by God to reclaim covenant made with God's people. And now for the culmination of Judas Maccabeus, the closing chorus. And I ask that you listen very carefully to how this differs or how it is similar to the closing chorus to Messiah. Rejoice, O Judah, in songs divine, with cherubim and seraphim harmonious join. Hallelujah. Amen. culmination of Judas Maccabees in this joyful, celebratory hallelujah. We don't have enough time to cover all the dimensions of Messiah that I was hoping we could share today, but one of the points that we've made in this conversation is that Judas Maccabees is much about the political life, not only of Israel in its military strike, but also has tones running through it. Uh, of England and its political and military strife of the time. Messiah, on the other hand, is primarily a theological, not a political piece. And at the core of Handel's Messiah is it is God's word, namely scripture. Why? Because God said it. End of conversation. So I can think of no better way to summarize Messiah than with two pieces that bring home this message. to the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. So here are Handel and Charles Jennings, the librettist, staking their claims against the deists, against modern criticism, and saying, this child that's going to be born, this son of God, truly is the Messiah. Why? For no other reason than because the Lord has spoken it. We're going to close out our presentation, but as we leave today, we'll also listen to the glorious music of how God's people Respond to this good news that a child is going to be born. So next week will be our last forum before Christmas. Uh, Next week is also our festival of lessons and carols. We join the throngs to King's College. um, We join Anglicans all around the world in the celebration of lessons and carols. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the adult forum, uh, but my topic writ large is going to be the Anglican heresy. Uh, The Anglican... Yeah, Anglicans don't like that word so much we try to cover it up. Um, No, someone once accused Anglicanism of emphasizing the incarnation, emphasizing Christmas so much that we lose sight of the rest of the gospel. Uh, So I'm going to talk a little bit about why Anglicans love Christmas so much Uh, And the Anglican heresy of the Incarnation. Will you join me in thanking Mark Smith for his presentation this morning?